Well, I wanted to begin today. Uh, first, I'm Tom. I'm lead pastor here at Coast. If you are just joining us uh, for the first time virtually, that's an odd way to join us. But nevertheless, I hope you'll get a sense for how passionate we are about uh, worship, how passionate we are about scripture, grace, and family. With that, um, I'd like to jump back into Leviticus. Uh, thanks to Lloyd last week for doing an awesome, fun service. Uh, it was cool to see uh, Jacob's Torah call in during the, the, the sandwich thing. That was a lot of fun. Um, so thank you, Lloyd. Before uh, Lloyd took over for a week, we've been in uh, Holy Rollers. It's a, it's a series on Leviticus, which is crazy. Not a lot of churches like to look at Leviticus, even though it's one of the coolest books in the Bible. We've been looking at what holiness is. We've said that, yeah, we don't have to follow the Old Testament laws, right? We're freed from that. We don't, Christ frees us from that. But if we look at the Old Testament laws and we understand them, we see something true and real about God's nature and character that shows us what actual holiness is like. So we've been at pains to say that holiness is not James, the anti-bond. Every week we say it's not, holiness does not mean you don't gamble and drink and smoke and dance. Okay, that's not holiness. That's very little to do with holiness. Whatever, you know, your tradition might, might say. That's not holiness. Holiness is something radically different and that's literally what it means. When we say that God's holy, we mean that, that holiness means God's radically different than the other gods, than human beings. And we've been looking at some ways in, that's, in which that's the case, right? So the first week we saw that God's radically committed. God doesn't give up easily. He doesn't give up at all. God keeps going. We saw the next week that God's radically pro-life, capital L, life. This doesn't mean that God's only for the unborn, although I believe God is. It's that God is for the capital L, eternal life that, that God in God's self experiences and pours out to the world and wants to see that for humanity. That the life of, of God is something that we enact and realize. We saw then that God is radically wise. God, God has a very clear understanding of the balance of the universe and, and how things ought to be. And, and likewise, we should be that way, able to perceive the best path even when there's a lot, even when there might not be a good one. To, to choose the, the least worst is something that, that, that holy rollers do. And then uh, two weeks ago, we looked at God being radically redemptive. That God is not interested in leaving things broken. But God is interested in making them right. So uh, this week, I'd like to look at uh, one of our one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible, and certainly in Leviticus. It's uh, the chapter. It's chapter twenty-five, and it, it discusses the year of jubilee. And you shall make the fiftieth year holy, and you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. You shall return, every one of you, to your property, and every one of you to your family. The 50th year will be a jubilee for you. Don't plant, don't harvest the, the, the growth from last year, and don't gather from freely growing vines. Why? It's a jubilee. It's going to be holy to you. You can eat only the produce directly out of the field, whatever grows naturally out of the field. In this year of jubilee, you shall return, every one of you, to your property. When you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not cheat one another. When you buy from your neighbor, you shall pay only for the number of years since the jubilee. The seller shall charge you only for the remaining crop years. If the years are more, you increase the price. If they're less, you diminish the price. For it is a certain number of harvests that are being sold to you. You shall not cheat one another, but you shall fear your God. For I am Yahweh, your God. 
It's an odd text. You need a little bit of background to fully understand what's going on, because notice it talks about the 50th year, right? Well, 50 after what? The way that God organizes in, Levit- in the Levitical holiness laws the life of Israel is they, they go, Israel's life goes in seven-year uh, sort of sets. So like there's a seven-year set, then a seven-year set, then a seven-year set, seven-year set. And the idea is, is that within those seven years, like a week, there's going to be six years where, where the Israelites are working the land and they're, they're producing stuff. And there's going to be a Sabbath year, a seventh year where, where Israel rests and the land is, is given a break, as it were. And the reason for seven is probably because God sort of sees that as, as, a, as a, a symbol for complete completion, a symbol for wholeness, something like that. And practically speaking, we've noticed that, like for us, if you work for six days, you need a break. And presumably the land needs a break after six years of work. Now, if you take seven of these seven-year sets, you get 49 years. And that leaves a year that's kind of off kilter, right? That year doesn't quite fit with the seven, 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 seven. And yet 50 is a nice round number. And so God declares that the 50th year is going to be holy, radically different. And in this year, God is going to, or the people are going to proclaim liberty throughout the land. The word there for liberty is deror. It's kind of, it's, it's not, it's pretty rare in the Old Testament. It, it has an interesting meaning. For those of you who are here, and if you're online and you're chatting, uh, so liberty is what Americans are all about. Uh, we love freedom and liberty. And if you were to say the one thing that you think truly encapsulates the American notion of liberty, what would it be? The thing where you say, that's what liberty is. That's, that's what nails it for me. Anybody here? Freedom of speech. Really? The American flag. You guys are a bunch of patriots. Well, I'm sorry? Statue, lame. I think it's the four, it's the four by four at In-N-Out. <laughs> Have you guys seen the four by four at In-N-Out? Uh, it's, it's awesome because in America, like liberty means like we do what we want. And so if you go to In-N-Out Burgers and you go to the, the line, there's nothing on the menu that says four by four, but it's like, this double double's not enough. And I need more. And so because we're Americans, we say, I want four patties and four slices of cheese. And I want an animal style. It's got, I want extra pickles and grilled onions and extra, I guess it's Thousand Island sauce, but it's special Thousand Island sauce. And I want you to toast the bun in mustard. And by golly, do it now because freedom. Right? Yeah. He, yeah. he gets me. <laughs> Well, that's not exactly a biblical notion of liberty. And I want you to, I want you to see, this is a very interesting word, Doror. And so uh, to show you what, uh, what biblical freedom is or biblical liberty is, uh, take a look at these two things here. This is, um, this is a sparrow or a swallow, something like that. And it's in a cage on the left there. And then on the right is myrrh that has uh, come out of the resin of a tree and has solidified. It's hardened. Okay, and so uh, when they were harvesting myrrh in the ancient world, they would go up to trees, they would stab the tree, and then the resin would come out, and the resin would crystallize, harden, and then they would take that those uh, to myrrh resin, and they would have it. Now, if you'll notice two things about, or if you'll notice the same, what's in common here is that the bird can't go anywhere because the bird's caged, and the resin is useless because it's hard. If you've ever, I mean, for the essential oil people and the aromatherapy people. No one wants like a rock of myrrh. That's useless. What you want is you want myrrh oil, right? And that's, 
that will heal you. That will make you feel nice. That's, that's, what, that's where the power is. The power is in the oil, not in myrrh rock. Okay? Interesting. When the Old Testament, the Old Testament, the word daror, can refer to myrrh, and it can refer to swallows, but not these kinds. I want you to hear me now. Not these kinds. So if you, the Old Testament, the Hebrew word daror cannot refer to a sparrow or a swallow in a cage, nor can it refer to myrrh resin, hardened, rocky myrrh. Instead, the word daror can refer to these two things. The sparrow, the swallow that's been set free, that flits and darts about. Moreover, the myrrh that has been, uh, if you don't know the way that you make myrrh oil in your home, if you get, if you get a rock of myrrh resin, Brian, this is for you because I know that you're a homemaker. So you get a myrrh rock and then you get a mortar and pestle and you crush it to a fine powder. And then you mix it in with something like grapeseed oil, um, or in the case, probably olive oil in the uh, ancient Near East. And then you slowly heat it over a long, and you stir it. And over time, the oil interpenetrates the, the, the melting resin, and it becomes a, a viscous sloshing fluid. And that's what myrrh oil is. That's how you get it. What's going on here? is that when you use the Hebrew word daror, you can, it can refer to a darting, you know, flying swallow, or it can refer to a, what we might say, free-flowing oil, like an oil that can move. It's, it's not, uh, it's, it, it has all the, all the power from in, inside the oil has been unleashed. Right? Now you can use this oil as a perfume. You can use it for various things, whatever myrrh oil is good for. Jug, do you know off the top of your head? It's for my face? Well, I need that because my face is broken. So if, if, in fact, myrrh oil is good for your face, that's what I need on my face all the time. So, but, that, but you can't, it won't work, though, Doug, if you have myrrh rock. It only works if you have free-flowing myrrh, and that's Daror. And likewise, a sparrow is kind of a sad thing when it's in a cage, but when it's released, when it's unleashed, it can fly about and has power. It's, it's, it's unleashed. It's, it's wild and free. That's Daror. What this means is that the biblical notion of liberty or freedom is very different, well, not very, but slightly different than the American notion. The American notion is, I do what I want. The biblical notion is, liberty is is being unleashed from whatever cages you or gums you up. And that's uh, the first thing in your note sheets. The biblical concept of liberty is unleashing what has been caged or gummed up. It's, it's a freeing of potential. It is, it's, it's, the, uh, it's the energy that, that is released when something is, is, is let, set free from its, from its confines. Now, if that's the case, then the 50th year, the Jubilee, what is it? It's, it's an unleashing of something. Something has been caged up. Something has been gummed up. And now God is saying, every 50 years, you're free. You're unleashed now. What was keeping you inside and, and bottled up and, and gummed up and caged? That, the cage is open. You've been, you're ungummed. You're free now. You're liberated uh, to, to, to do something. So, so what needs to be unleashed? Let's go back to the text. Oh, by the way, Jubilee, uh, it comes from the word for a horn. That's Yobel. It's, a, it's just a transliteration. And it, it indicates um, the day of the year when the new year starts, and they blow a horn 
indicating that now this new year of liberty is happening. During this time, what? Do not plant. Do not harvest the secondary growth. That's uh, the growth from what you'd planted the year before. Like if those plants maybe uh, flower again, you still can't touch them. Do not gather from the freely growing vines. It's a jubilee. The land is being unleashed. And it will be holy to you. You can only eat the produce directly out of the field. Again, this is slightly odd. Do not plant. I mean, you got to wonder, like, well, I mean, we don't live in this world. I mean, we saw it for like one week when everyone thought there would be not enough toilet paper for everybody during COVID. And the thing, people were running for the toilet paper because they were like, first toilet paper goes and then it's going to be water and food. And I remember going to the, the grocery store during this thing and seeing like, you know, empty, like, well, I want meat, but it's not there for me. What is this? What is this feeling of not getting what I want immediately all the time? I don't like it. Well, in the ancient world, that was normal. In the ancient world, if you, if you didn't plant, you didn't eat. So what's going on? Um, well, ancient people noticed that uh, if you live a life that's dedicated to manual labor, like working in the fields, uh, it had a tendency to deform you uh, and shorten your life. People who work the land, uh, often because they're hunched over all the time and their, their, their back, their spinal cord, or their, spine, their, their vertebrae actually end up, you know, kind of hunched over. Um, and so they, they become physically bent because of year after year of working the land. I think I've got a 19th century painting of manual laborers. What God says is, God says it's not just the people who are being oppressed by labor. The land is too. And it's true, if you, uh, you, know, if you don't know anything about farming, uh, we have some modern ways of avoiding this, but back in the, in the ancient world, if you kept planting year after year after year, the nutrients of the soil would get used up. And so eventually the, the ground wouldn't produce anything. No matter how much you planted, it would, it would stop producing. And ancient peoples, uh, they started to make, make a connection between the, the way that backbreaking labor uh, deforms and, 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 and crushes a human being and also the way that, that constantly working the land exhausts the land. And then, so in the ancient world, they, they, it's called letting the, the field lay fallow. Don't plant anything. Give the, cha- give, the, give the land a chance to rest, a break. Because what happens if you do? It, the, the, the land's been caged in. It's been gummed up by being worked by humans. But if you let it breathe for a year, you will not believe what it does of its own accord. This latent strength, this latent uh, power that, that you've been shaping and, and, and forming, when you, when you take your hands off, the, the land itself, will that power, that strength will be unleashed. And, and this weariness of the land, the exhaustion of the land will be lifted. It's the next thing in your note sheets. Jubilee unleashes the strength of a weary land. Okay. Weird. 
Still not, okay, God, why, 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 why? Well, okay, let's look at the next thing. What, what, so the, the first thing Jubilee unleashes, liberty, unleashing of something that's gummed up. Uh, it's the land, the strength of, of a weary land. What's the next thing? Notice this uh, from the text. In the year of Jubilee, you shall return, every one of you, to your property. This is not like, oh, you've been on vacation, you need to go home. This is something different. Rocco, you shouldn't be here. But I'm not going to kick you out because I don't care. But you do have to answer a question. What is the all-time greatest golf movie? He's never seen a golf movie. You're a bad father. Caddyshack? Yeah, it's up there. No. What is it? Greatest game ever played in heavens? No. Happy Gilmore! 1996, Adam Sandler? Like, it's the greatest movie ever. It's so awesome. Happy Gilmore is incredible. What's the story of Happy Gilmore? Do you know the story? I think I have a picture here. Uh, Happy Gilmore, 1996. Happy is a uh, failed hockey player. <laughs> and he's a kind of a loser. And his grandma, his poor sweet grandma, uh, she lives in this home and she's $270,000 in debt to the IRS. And so the IRS says, we're going to come repossess your home. And Happy's like, I can't let this happen. But he's a loser. He's got no job. He's a terrible hockey player. And so he's sitting out there on the lawn, and he's like, and some guys are hitting golf balls. And he's like, dude, I can't hit it farther than that. And he does the most awesome, like, golf swing ever where he, like, backs up like he's going to do a slap shot in hockey. And he runs up, and he just, like, blasts the ball. And it flies, like, a 1,000 yards. And at that moment, someone's watching. They realize this guy could make it on the PGA Tour because he can outdrive everybody. In fact, uh, once my brother-in-law, Brett, we were, uh, we were golfing. Well, he was golfing. I was shanking. But he was like, hey, check. No, you know, it was John. I think it was John, Johnny V. Johnny V, was it you? I was, again, I'm shanking. John's playing. But at, he, you know, he, he got loose. He knew we were going to lose because he had me on his team. So he did it. He did the full-on Happy Gilmore drive where he, like, backed up. We thought he was, we thought he was faking it, but he really did. He ran onto the thing and just smashed it as hard as he could. And it was an, actually a really good drive. I was super impressed. The point of the, the of Happy Gilmore is that what's what's animating him to become a golfer, he hates golf, is that he needs this money because his grandma's being, her home's being taken away. Because she was kind of foolish. Maybe even a little lazy. The bills were piling up. She didn't think about using that social security to pay them. And she let it go for too long. And pretty soon. They take the house from her. Well, the ancient world's actually a lot like that. When uh, the people come into the land of Israel, God gives every single family, every tribe and every family in the tribe, their own special land. And says, this is yours forever. But you know how people are. Sometimes people are a little lazy. Sometimes people are foolish. Sometimes they're just unlucky. But what happened once they had the land is these families, they, they got into debt. 
And they couldn't hold the land anymore. And so they basically would sell the land to, some, to a neighbor or somebody in the area who was wealthy. And, and that person would give them a sum up front to feed them now. And then would take them on as indentured servants, sometimes as, as slaves. And then they would, they would work for a time underneath this new owner. And everything that God had given them, their inheritance, everything that God had promised them, they lost. But not in the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, God hit the reset button and said, it doesn't matter what you did. I don't care how badly you screwed up. I don't care how unlucky you were. I don't care what kind of boneheaded decisions you made or maybe at this point your grandfather made. And you've been born into this situation, this, this shameful situation where you lost the thing I'd given you. But guess what? I, I, every 50 years, you get it back. You get to go home. It's yours again. God hits a reset button. It's the next thing in your note sheets. Jubilee unleashes servants and slaves back to their ancestral homes. You see, the way God imagines it is he imagines these people, what they're supposed to be doing is they're supposed to be working this inheritance that he's given them. They're supposed to have this land that he's set apart and said, I've given this to you. But they've been caged up by either their own failures or the failures of others. They've been gummed up in their, in their hopes for this because of something that went wrong, like there wasn't enough or someone, someone spent too much money on seed one time and, and things somehow got out of whack. Some, somehow things took a wrong turn and, and, and then God says, God says, I understand and there are consequences for your actions, but at a certain point I'm just going to say, no, you get to go back. Similarly, you might be hearing what's going on with the land, right? The land has been literally poked and prodded and, and scarred by humans for years and years and years. And God says, and now you get to go back. You're free. But things get complicated. Let's just say that you're a savvy person and you're listening to this and you're like, so wait, every 50 years, no matter what, we all get to go back to our homes. Well, if you're a savvy person, you'd be like, all right, it's year 47. You're like, huh, I know what I should do. I should sell my land, get a whole bunch of money, and then just go party for three years. And then during Jubilee, I'll get to come back. It'd be great, right? Or alternatively, it might be like, you, know, you just had a, zo- a jubilee a couple years ago, and you're like, wow, if I uh, sell my land right now, I will be dead before it returns to our family. Things get complicated. So take a look here. Notice that, that God understands that. God gets that. He says, uh, you know, when you buy from your neighbor, you pay only for the number of years since the jubilee. So like each jubilee, each, uh, each year would be worth so much money based on what the crops would be worth or whatever. And the seller charges you only for the remaining years, right? And if the years are more, it's, it's more. If it's less, it's less. But the point is, God recognizes that there's a complications. And if you go on, if you go on in the chapter, you see that the, these complications get very, very complicated. 
Because human life is really, really complicated, and it's very confusing sometimes to figure out whether or not you should do X or Y, and if you do X or Y, what the unintended consequences might be, and so things can get really jumbled, really gummed up, really fast. And God takes that into account. We sang Amazing Grace today by John Newton, 18th century Brit. Got a picture of him here. He lived quite a long time. I think he, he, lived, he lived into the early 19th century. Um, I think he lived to be 70 or 80 years old. If you know the story, the, 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 the way we'd usually tell the story is something like this. There was this awful guy. His name was John. And John was a slave trader. And then one day, John met Jesus. And then he asked for forgiveness, and he changed his life, and then he became a really, really great guy. That's a nice story. It's also not true. When John Newton was a uh, late teenager, I think, uh, he was impressed into the Royal Navy. He had no desire to become a sailor, but uh, at the time, if the king or queen needed it, they could make any able-bodied person join the Navy. He hated being in the Navy, his, uh, <laughs> and the people on his boat hated him. So uh, when they were off the coast of West Africa, they um, sold him into slavery uh, in Africa, and uh, he ended up... Um, there was a princess of the Sherbo people. He ended up uh, her slave for like five years where he was uh, horribly, horribly treated, abused in all kinds of different ways to the point that he would almost not even want to talk about it later in life. But it, it generated a, a burning hatred in his heart uh, for a lot of things and a lot of people. When he escaped uh, from slavery, he uh, all he knew was was sailing, and he was on a ship, and so he was doing parts of, of he was doing some shipping, some slave trading, other regular uh, mercantile activity. He was off the coast of Ireland during this awful storm, and uh, the storm it looked like they were all going to die, and so he begs God, God have mercy, I'll, I'll be a good man, like just don't let me die. And at that moment, like while he's praying, uh, the the storm ends, and then they 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 make it, and he's like, dang it. <laughs> Okay, fine. <laughs> so, so then he starts reading his Bible, um, and he becomes a Christian. And then check this out. He becomes holy. You know what he does? He stops drinking. He stops smoking. He stops swearing. Holy, right? You know what he doesn't stop doing? Trading slaves. spends another 10 years in the slave trade until he has a stroke which forces him to land. He enrolls in seminary. After a long time of being rejected by the Methodists, the Presbyterians, uh, even some of the evangelicals, he's finally taken on by an evangelical church uh, in the Church of England and he becomes a, uh, a pastor. And during this time when he's ministering to people, he realizes 
what a horrible, horrible person he'd been. And so for the last 30 years of his life, he's a rector, um, which means he works in a church. Um, and he becomes dedicated to the abolitionist movement and is one of the uh, premier influences on William Wilberforce, who was one of the major abolitionists in the United Kingdom. But what's the point? The point is, is that things are complicated, right? Everyone wants a simple, oh, you know, he had, an, he had a conversion experience. He became perfect. No, 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 he was really awful. The thing is, you know, he starts out life in this horrible place, and then God hits reset and says, and says John, I, I'm going to give you a shot. And he's back home, he's back on his land, he's back doing, his strength is unleashed, he's free. And then he, oh, geez, goes right off the track again. Oh, no. Makes a really, gums things up, finds himself caged as he's caging others. And then he's not even noticing it, but God smacks him again and resets things. Says, oh, you think you're going to be a sailor, slave trader? No, 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 you're going to be here. And, and he's reset, he's back on the land, he has a new hope, he can, strength is unleashed, there's new possibility. And then he's like, and he just kind of wanders and meanders for, for years before God puts him back and says, no, reset. Do it again, John. Get it right this time. And finally, John looks up and realizes. It's not the first jubilee. It's not the second jubilee. It's the third jubilee where finally John Newton gets it right. God understands that Jubilee is a great idea. It's a beautiful notion that we're going to, you know, reset things. But it gets complicated, and it's hard. Human beings live messy, weird lives, and it's very difficult to, to just hit the reset button and make it all okay. That's why there's all these governing regulations over the Jubilee, because God's trying to, to, to manipulate it and fix it so that it really is a true opportunity to start over, to get a second chance. It's the next thing, your note sheets. No matter how much we cage ourselves or how much we gum up our lives, God offers a reset. The whole point of Jubilee is for us to look up and God to say, it doesn't matter what you do. I know you're you and that's a shame, but I'm going to give you another shot. Jubilee is reset. And sometimes it takes a lot of resets. Well, Christians, we have another word for reset. We have another word for second chance. For Christians, that word's grace. It's the notion that, man, we don't deserve it. And based on all of our past history, we really should, no one should give us this chance. We're going to get it anyway. The first thing to notice about uh, Jubilee, to notice about God's grace, is it happens regardless of your intention. 
That's why there's all these complicated rules is because God's like, look, every 50 years, I'm going to reset stuff. And there's rules to try to make it so that you can't game the system, so that, 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 that you really are getting a fair, honest second shot. But the thing is, whether you're looking for it or not, the jubilee happens. And it happens in our lives too. I mean, look, whether you want it or not, there are times where God just says, here you go. You don't, don't pass go, or no, do pass go. Collect $200. End up on boardwalk. Here you go. You win. And you're like, wow. It's, it's not about your intention. It's not about your desire. I mean, sometimes it is. Sometimes, you know, you're down on your knees and God says, oh, here you go. Here's your second chance. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes God is just that gracious. Jubilee is going to happen. God's grace happens whether you like it or not. I recommend liking it. Number two. Jubilee does not mean there are no consequences for our actions. It is true that there's, it gets complicated and God is trying to, but the fact is, if the Jewish people or the Hebrew people were foolish or, or, or lazy, they would lose their land. Now maybe it's not permanent, maybe there's other opportunities and possibilities, but there are consequences. God's grace is not like a get out of, you know, dealing with your, your, your nonsense card. That's not how this works. Unless it does. And that's number three. Sometimes it means we get off easy. The crazy thing about God, and it's just nuts, is that God, sometimes you look up and you're like, holy Toledo, I lost the farm, but guess what? Jubilee is next week. And, and how many times have I met people and they've come to me in, in really the depths of life. They've made decisions that are just really bad, and they're about to lose everything. And gosh, how many times does it turn out they don't lose anything at all? Like, well, gee, God, thanks. And there's other times where they do lose it all. And yet the grace is still there, and the reset's still possible, and there's still a future. It's just not the one we necessarily wanted. Number four, One of the sobering but, but real things about God's grace is that it comes at a time sometimes where it can only promise a future. You know, um, the deathbed conversion, uh, in, in some ways John Newton, if he hadn't lived as long as he did, really, like, you know, for all he knew, he had this, this major conversion and he didn't have necessarily that long to, to see his life radically change. And boy, he jumped in when he did. I mean, he went all in on abolition. Um, but that wasn't promised to him. And you might be in a place where the hope that God's grace offers you, it might be a hope for the future, and it might not be something that you necessarily get to possess now. And that's a sobering reality, but man, if there's 47 years until the Jubilee and you sell the farm, chances are you're not going to see it ever again. Which brings us to five. God's grace is such that it hammers away at us and it keeps coming regardless of whether we want it or not. And it keeps chasing and pursuing us. And ultimately it promises us that we will live again. This isn't something that Israel knew. This is something that we only know in Christ. But that the hope of resurrection... And the hope of eternal life 
is based on the, the belief and the hope that no matter how bad we're caged, how matter, how, no matter how gummed up things are, God's not quitting. God secured us. God chose us. God's not letting go of us. And God is going to see us home. And if that's what God's grace is for us, then that means that we as holy rollers have to be radically gracious to others. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for the Jubilee. We thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you that you press the reset time and time and time again, even when we don't deserve it. That you're always offering a new hope, a new future, that you don't quit. And in the end, we should never, ever, ever bet against you being radically, insanely, wildly gracious to us. We thank you for that, God, and we pray that we'll be radically, insanely, wildly gracious to others when they hurt us, when they target us. Instead, we'll just be filled with grace. And that in that, they might see your grace through us. In Jesus' name, through whom we have your grace, now and forever, through the cross, in the resurrection, we pray. Amen.